Hello, beautiful people. Thank you for clicking on this episode and joining us here at the Melanated Intellects Podcast. My name is Patrice. And my name is Shayla. We are here to talk about everyday melanated topics while bringing a distinct intellectual perspective. Thanks so much for joining. All right. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back for another episode in our Netflix series. Um, We, this is something, I know I say it every episode, but it's true. It's something we've thought about for quite some time. Um, (laughs) We've just decided that we wanted to highlight Netflix. We're not getting paid. We just wanted to highlight Netflix as a resource when it comes to telling our stories or our history, particularly in the form of documentaries. The one that we're going to be highlighting today is High on the Hog. Um, which I think also came out this year. I think that came out this year. And um, it was originally a book. And actually the author of the book is in the um, documentary, which I think the documentary is four episodes. And um, it's really about the journey of melanated people, black people when it comes to our food. And um, the individual who hosts the show starts in Benin and, you know, sort of moves over to the U.S. He highlights several different areas, um, including the Carolinas, New York and uh, Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say the New England area. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was riveting and interesting. And I had I just really enjoyed um, watching it. So uh, Patrice, take us away with your thoughts on the documentary. Um, honestly, it was very enlightening. Um, it it felt like everywhere you saw African food, it was like a breadcrumb of that was kind of our history. A piece of our history was there. And I don't know if that makes sense, but (laughs) thinking in terms of like Hansel and Gretel, there was just a breadcrumb left everywhere that we have been. Um, and honestly, it was only specific to um, the continent of the country of Benin and the continent of Africa and um, the colonies, but I'm sure there are way more out there as well when you include the entirety of the diaspora. But um, yeah, um, I really want to um, kind of highlight, you know, there were so many cuisines that really, that I didn't really think about. I really didn't, you know, um, for example, okra. Um, kind of starts off as one of the foods that they highlight. And, you know, me growing up, I totally took advantage of so many of these uh, meals that I mentioned, including okra, and seeing how, you know, the people of Benin, how they use it. And they're like experts in cooking mm. with okra. Me, it free, it, when I first put in my first soup, it like freaked me out because it was so slimy. And I was like, okay, I didn't cook mm. that right. And I was like, I didn't do something right. And I did it. But, you know, seeing how they handle it, especially, you know, um, as I'm on this vegan journey and seeing how they, um, how they were cooking and pro- these produce, these plants and seeing what a real um uh, gam looks like it just it was so eye-opening and how okra was one of the foods that came with the people and seeing how big of uh, big of a part that the food of Africa really played in the um, Atlantic slave, slave trade that was super eye-opening um, and it I, I don't know. Like, I'm still trying to gather my thoughts on it, but like, I just never thought, like you think about corn that way. I remember we talked about mm. our grits episode, how corn paid such a big part in, um, from native American to Spanish and how it like really played a big part in the U S being established, but okra, like I never even would have guessed 
I just, it, that was so eye opening for me. Yeah. Um, it's a lot. It was jam packed with information. <laughs> um, the series, like e- every episode, there's like five or six things I learned that I did not know. So, um, it explained the documentary explained that okra was brought over with us. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, that's something I didn't know. And then it starts off like in this market in Benin. Um, He's with the author of High on the Hog. And they're just talking about food staples when it comes to the African um, diet, but particularly there in Benin. And um, Black Eyed Peas was mentioned. Mm -hmm. She settled the difference between yam and sweet potatoes. Just a lot of things that were mentioned that we we consider to be soul food. You know right, what I mean? So like right. the connections to me, for sure, they're, you know, cooking it in a different way than we are and, and things of that nature. But food wise, I was like, oh, wow, the, a lot of these foods are being recreated. Um, and that was a very interesting connection for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very cool to see there. I don't even know where to start with it. It, it was so much information. Um, the first, I think is the full first episode where he's in Benin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just talking about what a large port, I don't, I can't remember the percentage, but it's like a big 70, 80% of the slaves that left Africa went through the port in Benin. And I even looked up yeah. geography geography wise like where it's located it's in west africa um very close to like ghana nigeria togo i think it sits between togo and mm-hmm. somewhere in that area mm-hmm. um and he even went on this path of like he walked the same path that our ancestors walked um when they left when they got taken and the man there was explaining like we haven't changed the road you know, the road is still the same road it was then. It was really emotional for me. It was quite, I was quite moved by um, the whole thing. But the first episode particularly, and, and we're giving stuff away. So if if you haven't seen it, um, please do go see it. Yeah. Um, it. It's just a lot of history with uh, it. It just like ebb and flow. Like it was food, but it was our history. And I yeah. mean, I guess. I cried like three times. I'm not going <laughs> to I should have known that like our food and our history would be that closely related, but I hadn't quite connected it in the way the documentary did. So I don't think I expected to have the two woven together the way the documentary did it. Yeah. And you know, when he was walking down that path too, and they said it was four days, that, that really took, that hit me four days walking. You don't know where you're going to a point of no return and you're divided so that you're not with anyone you speak the same language of that is yeah I got I got emotional like that whole part from that scene all the way until the gate of no return that I was hella emotional um and you know I don't know much about Benin and it's funny when I pulled my ancestry I saw Benin in my DNA I I never I mean, I pay attention to the big percentages, <laughs> to be honest mm-hmm. with you. And I think Benin was like five or 10 or something like that. It was smaller. Um, and I was like, I've never heard of that place before. I've never, I don't think I've even met anyone who was from Benin, to be honest with you. And I've met quite a few Africans in my day that they're there um, coming from uh, one one of the countries off the continent, whether it be Nigeria or Cameroon, et cetera, or Lib- Liberia. But I've never met anyone 
who was from Benin. And I, that kind of stood, it didn't really hit me until I watched this. Um, it's a really small country. It's a skinny country. It's really small. Oh, okay. Um, so that could be, but you're right. I, I don't, I think, you know, when I think about the African countries that I either know someone from or that I've had food from, or that I feel like are a big influence, Benin is not the one that comes to mind. And mm-hmm. they actually kind of spoke about that. Yeah. Um, current generation food bloggers and things like that are really trying to get them on the map because they were like, we are so rich in culture. We have so much to offer, especially when it comes to food. They went to like a, uh, restaurant, um, mm-hmm. because the, I think the man who is the host is a food blogger and he like partnered up with another food blogger that was there locally. And, um, they were just having discussions in this restaurant because she knew the owner. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, they're trying to put them on the map. And from what I mean, of course, I I only saw this documentary is one episode, but it sounds like they have a lot to offer and perhaps they get overlooked. Oh yeah, absolutely. When you think about cuisine, you think Italian, French, and more of these rich, quote unquote, um, uh, cuisines for some reason, um, African or even African-American or African diaspora influenced meals, whether it be Caribbean or what have you, don't make that list. And I've always been curious why that is. Um, but I think this documentary, especially that scene and seeing how the food, the presentation, like it looked very rich and everything and flavorful. And I was just like, why is it like, what am I missing? Um, and I'm happy that they call that out because, you know, food like Jollof or, um, some of the other, um, meals that are really big staples that are known African cuisines, they absolutely should have so much more, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? So much more. I want to say clout, but that's just what I'm going to run with. Clout, <laughs> what they do mm-hmm. right now, because they're really popular and they're really praised. Like it's these are delicious meals. I even know Mexican cuisines. I know so many other heritage, even Asian cuisine, but you never hear about African cuisine. Um, so I hope that this documentary does make a big change for them, especially those chefs who have dedicated their lives to changing things. Cause you're seeing them like, they're going to London and training and then coming back. That's how invested they are mm-hmm. in putting Benin on the map. And I really do appreciate that dedication because that, that takes a lot of sacrifice and a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then also while, while he was there, um, he, he was served like the meal that like the food that would have been served prior to, Mm-hmm. Um, the slave trade mm-hmm. and I was just like kill me now I I'm mean I mean you. not the meal that we would have had before this I was I just know. like oh my goodness like you know I, I really know. hadn't thought about before there was any sort of influence culturally mm-hmm. what would have been served and eaten and um that was, it was just, it was just, it was really powerful. I'm going to say for me, it was one of the most powerful documentaries I've ever seen. Um, so. It reminds me of our um, episode we have with Sydney where we talk about the African heritage. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I and I kept paying attention to that, like trying to be curious, like, okay, where is it going to show up? It's going to show up here. It's going to show up here. And I did notice how like there was so much more produce on that table when they had that meal 
Um, and of course me being a vegan, I was like, Oh, I can eat this. (laughs) 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 Um, so I was probably like hyper focused on that, but it, it, the plates, the food, it was so colorful, so beautiful. And it just, it made me think about, you know, speak going back to like okra, yams, et cetera, the food that traveled with us, you know, how I know people, this new term gatekeeping is such a big deal, but how important it is to hold on to our culture because you can get lost. You, you can lose things like that. Like the simple fact that we do not know the difference between a yam and a sweet potato. Like I have never seen a hairy foot, hairy elephant foot looking yam the way I saw in this documentary. And I was like, what is that? And she yeah, said, she this really is broke down. <laughs> yeah. She really broke down a difference. She between did. Yam and sweet potato. She said, y'all not eat um, no damn yams. <laughs> um yeah yeah, and then and then at the end of i I think it was the first episode um he was talking about like how a lot of them didn't make the journey those four days that you were talking about and essentially it was a mass grave um of all the individuals that did not make it and this was like their last it was a port right yeah. so it was their last stop um before getting on the ships and leaving r- really never to see their home again um just how powerful um and that's episode one yeah I was like, this is the first episode i was crying at that point you know my my ass was over here ugly crying i cry over anything <laughs> i was a fucking wreck by that point i was like that's the grave <laughs> like it was over but it really kind of brought to me and I, I was hoping to say this towards the end of this episode but i'll just throw it out there now to be a melanin descendant is to be a part of a lineage that has survived multiple genocides, multiple. Mm. And, um, you know, they kept talking about how our people are so resilient, just speaking about that walk, that journey, then landing there and what they ate on the ship and landing in the U S and obviously we know what came after, um, eating, the scraps. I, I, it was interesting how every part, no matter what part of the New England or Southern colonies he went to, they discussed the scraps and how what meals had came from that. It was the same story, you know, um, whether they were dealing with oxtails, which wasn't, um, which was thrown out, or the pig feet and the pig head, which was thrown out, and slaves were doing what they could to make what they make with what they had. Um, no matter where they were from him joining the black cowboys to him joining, uh, the Gullah people, they all talked about how they took scraps and made this cuisine out of it. And honestly, I would say my favorite was the young lady who had the garden. Um, because personally, um, since being vegan, I make everything from scratch, not everything, but most things from scratch, whether it's croutons, you name it. And um, my family are always like, oh my goodness, that's so awesome. Like they really love it. And if I were in a place that had the crops for it and I had the time for it, because in Arizona, you can have a garden, but it takes a lot of time and money because where our soil is so dry. Um, I would absolutely have my own garden. I would have been started that probably prior to going vegan. Um, and so seeing her, you know, picking her own collards and turnips and seeing her taking what she picks from her own fields and 
been turning into this big cuisine for the community. I thought that was so beautiful um, because food is what brings us together. We've talked about this on this um, show so many times and it's a cultural experience. And I always talk about how we don't know what's going in our food. So when we can feed our communities, healthy food, produce and meat that hasn't been tampered or pumped with a bunch of GMO mess, whatever, like that is so important for our communities. And I just seeing that representation was huge. And it was so disheartening to see how her family, you know, it was land nobody wanted. At one point, it was, you couldn't even grow grass on that land. And now that they were able to raise and grow their own food, now some of them are being forced off of it. That was hard. That was really hard. Um, it, it's um, it, it, the documentary as a whole did a great job of highlighting the beauty and our culture and the food that we have brought forth and contributed to this um, country, to the world. And also identifying, you know, the struggles as well that we fought along the way while doing so. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, um, I want to piggyback off of something you said in regards to the scraps, because before... And maybe this is just my ignorance, but before watching the documentary, like we hear that, right? Like we were given scraps, right? We made something out of nothing when it came to the food. And it really broke down that it it really wasn't scraps to the enslaved because yeah. in Africa, they use every part of the animal. Yep. It really wasn't anything new to us to use yep. the pig feet, to use the oxtail, to use the chitlin, you know, what later became chitlins. It just, it, so, you know, kind of that thought process around, like, you thought you was giving us scraps, <laughs> really you was giving us food we was used to cooking all along. We so when nothing was, yeah, exactly. Right. That, 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 you know, that wasn't, that wasn't new to us, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and so that was an eye opening experience mm -hmm. for me to hear that because, um, I don't even know that it should really be called a scrap That's in the true. sense that when you think true. about, you know what I mean? Like when you think about using the entire animal, um, so after, after he left Benin, he went to Charleston, um, and I learned a lot about <laughs> rice fields. Okay. Yeah, so a lot of times yeah. when you when you hear about slavery, you hear about cotton being the the um you know, sort of the item of choice that was, you know, cultivated and, and money was made off of based off of free labor. Well, rice it sounds like might have been bigger than cotton or at least equal. At least in this area. I think yeah, um, for Charleston it definitely was yeah, there for, for Charleston sure. Charleston it was. Mm -hmm. And so um this man that he was interviewing kind of explained that it takes I don't know if if you've ever seen a rice field, right? Like it has like a lot of water and it has like the little grass on top and how that really took a lot of manpower to create these rice fields. And he was explaining that the scars on the land can still be seen from outer space. Yeah, right? he's, his exact, I quoted that one. Oh. <laughs> he said, more land was moved to create the landscape of the rice plantations than was moved in the making of the pyramids in Egypt. The scar of these plantations can be seen from space. 
Correct. And I really thought about the man because we're talking about a long time ago, right? So it's no tractors. It's no, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? The tools that we currently have for farming is, is were not available. And I really thought about the labor that requ- that was required and demanded in order to make this happen. Mm-hmm. And then fast forward to when slavery ended, the man was like, the different man, this is a white man now, um, was like, well, essentially 80% of the production of rice stopped because Africans specialized in cultivating rice, Mm -hmm. not white people or anybody over here in the U S. So we didn't learn from them that trade when they were enslaved. So afterwards it like was gone. You know, rice was a serious issue after slavery ended. So I was just like, wow, how interesting. Um, I didn't know any of that. Imagine being so arrogant. You're not even going to learn what you're growing, like what you're making other people grow. You're not even going to learn the business. Like You're just like, do it. How did the hell? (laughs) You know, imagine that. That is that is mind blowing to me. The fact that they didn't learn anything for it. I mean, I guess. That's what the slaves were for, like the upper trees. But you would think that they would know. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Like, yeah, that's real. That's crazy. 80% decline after the Civil War. That That's that's insane. That's, ins- yeah. Yeah. Um, the rice plantation um, and the guy he was interviewing initially was Michael Twitty, by the way, he was a culinary historian, which I did not know was occupation. I'm very mad. I did not know about that, <laughs> by the way, because we're meeting all these culinary historians throughout this entire documentary. And I'm like, your yeah. job is pretty cool. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> very jealous. Um, but uh, it, there's so much um, little traditions. There's a there's a moment where um, the host, his name is Stefan. Um, and he's uh, he's with Michael Twitty, and they're putting together a meal that the slaves were made back then. And they're making a meal, it's, it's got crab in it. And I kept, every time I saw seafood, I kept thinking, like, about this entire documentary, man, like, can you imagine a time when seafood wasn't expensive? Mm. Like, it was a couple cents on, you know what I mean? Like, mm. I think he said it was like half a penny or something like that at that time or maybe yeah. it was later in the documentary when they were talking about a different fish but i was just like man and, and you think about like the the creole culture you know what i'm saying and how seafood has just been made into all these amazing cuisines over time and i'm like man the, the inexpense of just going and fishing and cooking with your own seafood like mm. i guess it's not good for production you know what i'm saying we need to move quicker for production in terms of feeding the whole country but imagine that being right there fishing your own food and then turn, making this amazing cuisine that that was just mind-blowing but there's a moment where he's with michael and um he's like uh taste the food and they both put it on the back of their hand and they taste it and oh, he's like yeah. see how did you learn that how did you learn that see we come from different backgrounds but yet we both still know how to taste food and i feel like african american culture and even the black diaspora as a whole has a lot of that um overlap mm-hmm. No matter where you go, even how we eat and some things that we eat and even the flavors, 
um, when he was in Benin and he, they were talking about spice and how we have to have spice with everything, watching them cook fried fish, I was like, bro, did they just coat that and then put it in the oil just like we do here? Like, that's crazy. Mm. I know it's like that, but Jesus, fried fish is how you make it. But I'm like, I don't know, just seeing things overlap like that. Sometimes, um, uh, let's just say the world has done a great job is, of making us seem a lot more different and distant mm. of a culture than what we actually are. Put it that way. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, yeah, I do remember that moment. And you're right. There's a lot of those things that is just like, wow, like we come from different places, but yet that was passed mm-hmm. on from us. Um, and um, after Charleston, where did he go? I think he uh, went to Gullah. New England. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I found the Gullah people really interesting because um, for those of you that don't know, and again, I'm spoiling this, but they explained that they were on islands off the coast. And since it was so small, they're really small islands and they just didn't have they had similar experiences, but their experience was a little different than mainland, those mm-hmm. that were enslaved on these islands. And so they've been connected to their African heritage better than those that were on the mainland. So a couple things they didn't lose. Like, I don't know what language, there was an accent um, other than Southern. <laughs> there was an accent other than Southern. So <laughs> they, I feel they like they could have like, they sound, they own language. Of Louisiana accent, to be honest with you. Um, when it seemed I, a little different to me than just that. When I was in Louisiana, I took a swamp tour. There was a man who lived out there on the swamp and he was catching gators, et cetera. He, that he, they sounded just like his accent to me. Okay. A lot like him. Um, yeah. Well, they were able to hold on to much more of their um, heritage than, um, other, I think they're, they're the only, I think they say, I don't know the exact stat, but I think they are the only group to have held on to their heritage in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have like food, music. I mean, it's a whole special separate on this island situation that I loved. Uh, and then that's where they roasted the whole pig. They they had the whole yeah, pig. Yeah, uh, yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, high on the hog. Um, yeah, uh, yes. mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so what was interesting about that for, okay, so me as a little kid, I grew up on the show Gullah Gullah Island. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah uh, where yeah. they talked about the Gullah Island and the culture, et cetera. Um, one of my favorite TV shows. In fact, I got first for what, for that one, I think it was like six o'clock in the morning. I would jump, wake up just to watch that on the weekends. Um, my favorite show. Um, so that was the first time I heard about Gullah mm. Island. Not too long ago, my sister was like, have you ever heard of Geechee and Gullah people and yada, yada, yada. And like, she just was like really fascinated by the culture. And, um, so I was a little familiar prior to this. I would okay. say that obviously this took a whole nother depth of, in terms of understanding what I love about their story is that, it was because they were immune to the diseases that was spread around that time. I think they said it was, what was it? Um, um, malaria? Malaria, yeah, malaria. And that was, and so the slave owners would go head to the mountains and leave these slaves, and they were able to hold on to a lot more of their culture and traditions. And I thought, man, that is, it, it's kind of mind-blowing, something that small, but also seeing that they were immune to malaria, it's just like, man, that is godsend, okay? Like, how you just go be immune to a whole disease, and this is how you, this gives you the opportunity to hold on to your culture more than 
you know, every other slave that's going through this experience right now within like a hundred miles. So that was like, I, I did not know that about why the Gullah people were um, able to hold on to their culture. So that was something that was very new to me. Um, what was interesting is that, so when I was in Hawaii, I feel like that's how the whole high on the hog, like that, they do that there as well. Like, I feel like I've yeah. seen other cultures do that. And so it's it's kind of interesting to see that overlap because obviously in that time they weren't talking to each other. So I'm always curious, like, so how does that overlap? Like, was there some blending? Was it descending? Because Hawaii is obviously very far from South Carolina <laughs> and off some island at that. Um, so I always look for culture overlap like that. So that was really interesting to see how they um, did that. But seeing how they tend to the food out in the field, I feel like that was a 24-hour job, that man and that in that hog like he was out there all night if i remember correctly um going back to what you said about malaria i did know that that we um as black people just genetically we transitioned to the point where malaria we're less likely to get Mm -hmm. um the reason i know that is because that's where sickle cell comes from sickle cell anemia Mm -hmm. is our body's way of protecting us against malaria and if you have the sickle cell trait, I have the sickle cell trait, you can't, I can't get malaria. Mm. Um, so I did learn, so I did know that. Now, did I know that it played a factor in oh, their culture. culture in that way? <laughs> no, I definitely did not know that. Um, and even as they were cooking um, the hog and they were explaining the tradition of like, you know, everybody comes, like mm-hmm. all the families come and then you split it up and they was just talking about like passing it down. And like when he was little, he was out there because you got to teach the next generation. Like it was mm-hmm. just, it was simplistic, but also very beautiful. Um, in what they were describing. I agree. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, how we are when it comes to soul food and Sundays, like everybody's in the kitchen cooking. Mm. And teaching the young ones that you know low responsibilities so they can at some point feed their families um yeah that that was a beautiful thing i love community i especially love when we come together as community the whole feed the community with that one hog was like uh, beautiful you know mm-hmm. um and i feel like the only other culture i've seen that really honors every part of an animal's body like that would be native americans Mm. And so mm. I, I thought that, you know, hearing that significance, going back to what you were saying about how, um, you know, Africans knew how to cook every part of the animal. It, it That made me think about that. Like, OK, so Native Americans did, too. Again, me and my cultural overlaps. I like to look for it. So I just thought that that was really insightful, too. Um, I. I feel like. It's um, and I don't know how to how to articulate this, but you're kind of preserving it's it's such an experience when you can you know raise something up and really honor the food that you're that if you're if you're going to kill the animal we all know i'm vegan so if you're going to kill the animal like you're honoring it you know you're not Mm -hmm. being wasteful of it and it's you're not pumping it you're not abusing a bunch of crap and you're you're feeding your whole family like there's not greed involved and like Mm -hmm. when you saw that table like there was so much different food out there my my favorite one who had the garden came out and brought all her side dishes out there too, you know. And then the oh the plum wine, honey, I wanted to taste that through the screen so badly. <laughs> it looked so good, and I'm a big fan of plum wine. But know that they made it from scratch. I'm like, girl, you made it from scratch. Y'all need a vineyard. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just so many cultural treasures 
that's that's what I'm looking for. So many cultural treasures were in this documentary. Um, it was really beautiful to see, especially in these moments where they all sat down and had and shared and broke bread. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was powerful. It was really powerful to see. Um, and I thought they did a, a beautiful. I mean, I'm I'm not from there, but I hope they did a beautiful job at representing the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm just so excited to get to these New England states. Okay, because... I know, I know, I know. I'm like, all right, we got okay. okay. So, you see me okay. turning, turning pages here. I'm with you. So listen. So here's what happened. Here's what they saying happened, y'all. Okay, <laughs> they said it was a slave of Thomas Jefferson. And it was a slave of George Washington. Okay, and if these two chefs, these two men, were really culinary icons. Yes. Um. Hemings, who ended Sally, up being Hemings. Sally Hemings' brother, man, brother, I think younger brother, um, was for Thomas Jefferson, and how he was trained in French cuisine, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the one that was trained in French cuisine, and like was responsible for bringing over things like ice cream, French fries, and macaroni and cheese to the U.S. And then you got George Washington, his um, head chef's name was Hercules. And he just was bad. They was just bad in the kitchen. That's just what, that's, if you didn't get anything else, (laughs) (laughs) they was bad. They knew how to do down in the kitchen, throw down in the kitchen. And they just, their cultural influence, just, you have, you have no idea how important they were in what the food that we eat today, just even as Americans, how they influence that. Um, when it came to George um, Washington, the Hercules, George Washington's head chef, they there's this restaurant there. Um, I think it's in Virginia or is it in yeah. Pennsylvania? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And anyway, these two men run this restaurant, sort of motivated and inspired by these two two black men who were, you know, bad in the kitchen. And they were like, okay, well, you know, there's not a lot of information about their recipes. How do you know? And they're like, well, you know, George Washington's wife, Martha. Mm-hmm. Martha, Martha Washington. Um, has tons of uh, cookbooks and things like that. So we just going to assume. <laughs> we just going to assume it was Hercules' restaurant, uh, recipes. And I was just like, wow. Um, that sounds so about right. It does sound about right. But I'm just like. Wow, so much culture and history. Right there. Um, and then they were explaining that, like, um, was it? I, I don't know why I'm getting my New England states confused. Virginia ain't even a New England state, but they was talk. They kept talking about back from Virginia to Pennsylvania. I mm-hmm. think right. Mm-hmm. So yep. which state? Do you remember which state it was where people were free first? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So what I did not understand until why i mean i knew it but i hadn't really thought about it that pennsylvania okay you could be free in pennsylvania a whole 80 years prior to Mm -hmm. essentially juneteenth yep so i didn't understand i mean i knew it was a long time right but i 80 years is a, a grandmother or in some cases a great grandmother's lifetime. Mm-hmm. So eventually they started explaining like how up North, like black people invented catering. If you didn't know that. Okay. So black people invented catering. Mm-hmm. We were very successful. We in furs, driving cars, entrepreneurs, right. We're in Texas our counterparts were still enslaved for 80 years. Like for some reason to me, 
I don't know if I, it's just that I didn't do the math. Somebody should have been in prison. That's all I got to say. I'm just like what? 80 years is a long time from the first to the last. Yeah. In fact, when he does go to Texas, they talk, uh, there's a recording of a slave from 1941 and she talks yeah. about how when her master came home from the civil war, they didn't tell them that they were free for another six months. What the fuck? That's just insane to me to think that like, and they even touch on New York too, because mm -hmm. there's a um, restaurant owner and he um, was essentially responsible for oysters becoming what they are today. Um, uh, Thomas Downing. Yes, Thomas Downing. And um, he was like, well-respected, got my own business, making money. In the middle of Wall Street. Let's highlight that. In the middle that. of Wall Street. Yeah. And not to say that, I mean, obviously there were challenges when it came to being black up north. Like, I'm of not here at all to erase that. But just the concept that we could be so far in one part of the country and so not in the other part of the country for that long, I think was just so mind blowing to me. Cause I just, I don't, I had never done the math. I just didn't think about it or I don't know. And um, he was harboring was slaves, runaway slaves in sure his was. restaurant at that. Yeah, he sure was. Yeah, like, sure was. <laughs> and I don't even recall, did they say if he was born into slavery or not? Uh, I think he was. I, I feel but like he was, but 80 years. I feel like he was. Oh, no, that was Pennsylvania, not New York. You're right. Yeah, that no, was Pennsylvania, not yeah. New York. So, so I don't know was. when New York um, became a free state. Pennsylvania was first, it, and Texas was last. So I don't know where New York fell in between yeah. that, but Thomas Downing was obviously successful somewhere mm -hmm. if, you know, within those um, 80 years. Um, it was just, I was like, what? I know. I was really like, are you saying to me right I now? I know. Like, 80 really years, that's like a whole lifetime. That's a whole generation. Yes, a whole generation. Um, oh, so anyway, that's what I was going back to when it came to um, George, Hercules, George Washington mm -hmm. Hercules. The rule was if you were in PA for, I think it was six months, you automatically came free. So what he would do is he would send his slaves back to Virginia um, ever so many months to sort of reset that clock because that was the big question was like, okay, so are, are you afraid Hercules is going to leave? What's mm -hmm. the situation? Because now, you know, he the best of the best. When you come in town, you help him, you serve, you give him parties and stuff. Everybody come and get Hercules food. You know, what are you going to do? You know? And I was just like, wow. And eventually Hercules did escape. Mm -hmm. Um, so they did kind of talk about his journey and escaping. Yeah, that's right. He disappeared during an event, right? Yeah. yeah he disappeared yeah. during an event when he went back down, um, south because they said they took him out of the kitchen and started putting him as a laborer. And mm -hmm, like, cause they were worried oh, no. he was going to run away. It was towards mm -hmm. the end of George Washington's term. It was like, um, yeah, I'm not going to do that. But you know, I will say, uh, but he was spotted later in New York. Um, I think they said it was like 18... Uh, let me not say yours, but they spotted him later in New York, um, down the road. And after that one sighting though, they never saw him again. And he had taken up his prior slave owner's name. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
They did say that he changed his identity. Imagine you um, are the pioneer black chef and you got the president's wife stealing your recipes <laughs> and getting clout. You know, it was expected back yeah, then. I know. You know, you assumed that you would not get recognition, unfortunately, you know. Um, think about Jack Daniels. You think about the light bulb. You think about literally everything. That's how it went. Yeah. 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 Um, in this restaurant that these, these two men have where they're paying homage to these recipes they got like um it's not a true one but they have like this stuff this fire stove with the oven in the back with the brick and because they trying to make the food the same way hercules and hemings made i was like where let me put this on my list to okay go. i did the same thing i was like yo like, to go, let, let me, me add this to my list <laughs> Because I want what Mr. Hercules and Mr. Hemmings <laughs> made, okay? Listen, right. I mean, I love that too, though. Making sure it's over a real fire, not this electric stove. Like, there's there's a lot of authenticity to that, especially in the culinary world. So I appreciate that. And he said the hardest job is keeping the fire going. I just thought, I bet, buddy, I bet it's hot as hell up in there. They talked about the dangers yeah. that the job provided back then. Um, nothing like it is today. And it was really quite dangerous to be um, a slave in the kitchen. You know, the fire, it was serious. They often had burns. And, you know, you really had to make it happen as far as, um, you know, getting everything out on time and stuff. It, it, it was just, it was a deep um, thing to think about. Like I was like, Ooh, especially the women with the long dresses and the covered up sleeves. Cause they were fully clothed at the time. But could you imagine turning too fast close to that flame and your skirt, your apron, something get, get catch a flame. That's bad mm-hmm. news. I bet it was. Yeah. Man. It, yeah, it definitely was. Yeah. Um, and then at the end he sat down with like some of the original families that started catering right so black mm-hmm. people started the this concept of catering and had very successful catering businesses i believe this was in pennsylvania mm-hmm. and he sat down with some of their families and like they shared a meal and they talked about like how when they spoke to you know their grandparents and things like that to them it was just they was just doing what they was doing they you know for them it wasn't anything that they felt like they were paving the way or trailblazers or anything like that they were just like that's just what we did we just we cooked and then we sold the food people bought it that was it um but they really paved the way when it came to catering in general but particularly for just black entrepreneurship yeah, I loved seeing the original menus. That one's really mm-hmm. cool. And then seeing the okra soup. It brought me all the way back to the beginning of the whole damn documentary. I was like, look at this shit. <laughs> this damn okra soup is heavy. I gotta make me some okra soup. <laughs> but that that was, yeah, really insightful. Um, So I absolutely, okay. So y'all. <laughs> The black cowboy portion, okay? Uh, I was weak in the knees. I was. I was. There was <laughs> so many beautiful brothers. <laughs> I, I was... actually did a, a Melanated Monday on black cowboys. So some of those facts yeah. I did know mm-hmm. um, about the cowboys and how we, we really don't get the recognition that we should. Like a lot, one in four yeah. um, cowboys were black. Yeah, I've known that for quite a while being in Arizona. We have a black rodeo here that's annual um, every spring, I want to say. Oh, but just with that little nice space between 
wintering, blazing hot because <laughs> we don't really have a spring. <laughs> that little week in between that, that's when uh, <laughs> we usually have it mm-hmm. with the exception of COVID. But um, so I've known about the black rodeo trying to highlight black cowboys. But um, yeah, I, I was especially pleased to see the brothers in cowboy boots and cowboy hats because it's such a beautiful sight to see. I'm sorry, black cowboys will always be my weakness. I just don't. Oh my lord. Oh, is that oh, the thing? That's it is a thing. Into. Girl, yes. Oh, okay. Beautiful. Okay. Oh, okay. Just Any strong. black cowboys listening out there? <laughs> Patrice is your girl. I didn't know. Just strong I did teddy not know. bears. Just strong teddy bears. <laughs> Yes, there was one out there. I was, girl, I had to keep rewinding it because I kept not paying attention because he was so funny. I was like, wow, what? I remember you cutting up. I know my neighbors was like, somebody turn the TV off. She tripped me down. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, um, I love the story of the authenticity of our black cowboys and even the, um, the cowboy he was interviewing whose grandfather lived to be 115. And yeah, his daddy learned a lot of stories about being a slave and everything. And especially because in Texas, they were slaves a lot longer. He was right. able to learn to actually hear from an actual slave. And I just thought, wow, that is so powerful. My goodness. Yeah. Is that the one where he was, they were making the meal and he was directing them on yeah. what to do? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Put some more. What you scared that water for? <laughs> yes. yes that, that one. You know. He what like can you do other than what they tell you to do? That's you all do you better do. Than... <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mess around and get, get roped up, boy. That's all you better do. <laughs> That's it. Just do what they tell you to okay. do. Okay. Oxygen taken on. He was serious. You better listen to this man. It don't matter how old yes. they get. You listen. <laughs> Amen to that. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, I, I did think that it was really interesting. And even, um, one that they interviewed, he has a museum um, for mm-hmm. the history of black cowboys. And um, that's in Texas, isn't it? I think it's in Texas. Yeah. yeah. I was fearful for where it was, though, too. I was like, I hope that don't get vandalized. I hope that it's still standing and thriving. Like, I was really nervous for where it's at. Because, you know, when you put together your own museum, and especially something with that delicate of artifacts, people are assholes. You know what I mean? Especially mm. in this climate. I really hope that his, everything he has is completely protected um, because yeah. that is super valuable. So true. Yeah, so true. And I don't know, you know, I'm sure some areas, I, I'm not obviously from Texas, but I'm sure some areas are better than others. So I don't, yeah. I don't re- recall the city he was in to say, you know, yeah. one way or another, whether it was, Same. but um yeah, uh, I'm glad that he has it and that it's there, you know, it's there for mm-hmm. people to be able to check it out. But yeah, you're right. Hopefully it stays, you know, protected and good to go. Absolutely. So um, it was it was a really interesting. Um, I had a very good time watching it. I recommended it to my family and a couple other people um, to see it. So I would be inter- I might go- check out the book. Oh, yeah. I think I'm going to check out the book because mm-hmm. I'm going to want to learn some more of these practices. I'm sure she goes into even more detail. Detail, yeah. Um, I'm sure. I do want to dive into church and food. That is definitely oh, on my okay. list because have you, do you, I'm not going to explain it, but so I, I was raised in my church and we used to eat before, after, during, 
so many different events and you know i'm not foreign to the concept of a barbecue spot attached to a church like we saw at the zion um Mm -hmm. a baptist church in the documentary and i was so sad to see it close down shortly after that that was really this man that hurt um but that tradition i just it, it i don't know how to explain it but i just love it so i just i wanted to get your take i don't know if you highlight that too but I love that because it's like another opportunity for us to congregate um, after worship and how we pair food and culture and religion all in one. It's just it. That's black culture for you. For sure. Yeah, it's definitely strong when it comes to our culture and food and church and after service and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that. you know, I had I have a few memories of the church that we went to in regard to fish fry was the biggest. Mm-hmm. I was baptized Catholic, um, so definitely, especially like you know Lent and things of that. That mm-hmm. was a really big deal. The food that was served during that time, um, but um, other than that, I don't I don't have much to add there. I didn't have a situation like the Sunday dinners. I didn't have neither one of my grandmothers practiced the Sunday dinners. Okay, okay. so I never had that. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, we were really big yeah. on that um okay and my mom was actually the chef here and on my dad's side it was my auntie um so Mm. which is interesting because she never went to church but i don't think i've ever seen (laughs) that woman sit in church in my life (laughs) she was a chef that was her role she She said be ready when you get back leave me here (laughs) (laughs) i get it it makes sense whatever uh, but yeah, uh, for us, so Sunday dinner was a big day. If we went to church, we were having a whole dinner. If we weren't going to cook a big dinner, like when I was small, we'd go out to eat. Mm. That's the thing. Like we never just leave church and not come back and have dinner either at the church or, um, where they would actually cook right there in the, in the kitchen or, um, out to eat if it was not home and a whole big old spread. So yeah, that's a really, a pretty traditional practice my mama kept that she was she's very passionate about cooking and bringing the family together after church even mm. though she don't be going either sometimes <laughs> she will have the food and everything ready for sure yeah mm. so that yeah, was a nice little that. warm feeling for me i don't know why it just <laughs> made me feel all fuzzy especially during covid since we haven't been able to do it that much so it was mm. nice to see. makes sense makes sense mm-hmm. um but did you notice at the beginning of the documentary the Benin people had markings on their face? Yes, I remember when they were in the boat, the city yeah. that was like Uida? full of water. Okay, let me look. Yeah, I'm not going to attempt to. No, you don't want to mess it up that. like me? No, not today. <laughs> A lot of times I'm brave and I will attempt to pronounce something that I shouldn't, but not today. <laughs> <laughs> oh no it's it's the ganvi ganvi benin it was the voodoo um the water people mm-hmm. yes yes the water, the water people. people yeah yeah they mm-hmm. did. yes mm-hmm. i did notice that for the people yeah they um, had the his markings. guide through the city he was had markings yeah yeah so i say that because y'all need to listen to our next episode marked okay so. yes Yes, yeah. definitely. Please check that out. <laughs> um, that'll be our, our next um, Netflix episode that we do because um, there's a lot of history there that I definitely didn't know. You, you, mm-hmm. you know, it was just it was learning after learning for it me was. when it came to preparing for this series. It reminded <laughs> you know, me of it, my 
ASU African Studies course all over again. It was so much. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's our point, though, right? That's what it's about. Um, That it's a a lot of different um, resources out there. Um, And I do want to let people know, you know, we will be putting, um, we can't, okay, we couldn't cover all of the Netflix documentaries that we felt, you know, were good and educational and highlighted our experiences. So we do have a list of others that we recommended, either we've checked out personally or that we've heard about. Um, So we will have that in our description as well. So, yeah. So don't forget to share and can come on back next week for the next one. And y'all be safe out there. Bye. Bye.